I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to Doomsday Watch. We hope you're finding these war bulletins valuable. Quick reminder that you can support our work on the crowdfunding app Patreon from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to Doomsday Watch. A year ago on our sister podcast, The Bunker, I spoke to Mesa Gifford about his extraordinary story as a volunteer in the International Brigade in Syria fighting against ISIS. And now, a year later, Mesa continues his work as an international volunteer, but in this case, with relation to the Ukraine conflict. I'm delighted he's joined us today to tell us a bit about that. Mesa, welcome. Good afternoon, Arthur. Let's just start with that backstory. For those who missed your fascinating podcast and the book you've also written, perhaps you could briefly summarise your experiences in Syria and how that set you up to be involved with this Ukraine story. Sure. Well, I went out to Syria in 2014. Obviously, just like everyone else at home, I was appalled at the horrible and vicious rise of the Islamic State. And what frustrated me at the time was that Britain, America and others, perhaps because of years of war fatigue, uh, because of the the war on terror, and etc., really didn't have a plan to get rid of ISIS. And with the call from the Kurds for people around the world to come over and support them, I was inspired. So I went out in 2014 and fought for three years alongside first the YPG, later the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces. And I ended my time in 2017 in Raqqa, which was just a a brutal, brutal battle. Prior to that, perhaps unusually, you hadn't been a soldier, you hadn't come from a military background. So you were a, a genuine volunteer in the sense of somebody who saw something they cared about and stepped in. Yeah. I mean, well, my background really is after doing a degree in politics and international relations, I was very much politically engaged in the UK. I joined the Conservative Party years ago, ran to be uh, the head of the National Management Executive of the Conservative Party for the Youth Wing, um, a local councillor, that sort of stuff. I got so bored of it. Uh, So I went over to work for the MDC, the Movement for Democratic Change in Zimbabwe. Um, And I also spent time in the Congo, Uh, Somaliland, Ethiopia. But then obviously in 2008 with the, uh, in 2009, the big recession, I graduate into um, a time of great uncertainty. So I almost fell into the city. So reconnecting with that sort of, that spirit of internationalism, as it were, I, I almost went back to what I was good at, or at least what I was passionate about, I think. So we now fast forward to 2022. How did it feel for you as someone who had literally gone to another country, taken up arms to fight for a cause that you believed in. Uh, How did it feel for you watching events unfold, the build-up to war in January? How did that sort of land with you? Well, I was there just a few weeks ago um, where I was meeting with a number of people who worked for the home defence units over there, so the Ukrainian Legion, that sort of thing. Basically, yeah. the message was quite clear on the streets. First of all, that there was a disconnection between what the world was saying, what people were saying was going to happen, i.e. that Russia was going to attack, and what people on the ground felt. The normalcy that I could see all around me uh, was at complete odds 
with the um, the view that I had that they were just about to be invaded. And it moved me that I could see people eating dinner, people were going to the shops, there were kids. Uh, I mean, there were queues to the theatre. And I was walking around and I can vividly remember on one evening looking for a restaurant, thinking to myself, I've seen war. I've seen what war does to cities, what it does to people. And are you guys not, are you mad? Are you not terrified of what could happen? Um, and then I witnessed, obviously, the invasion. I was there over the next couple of days as the bombs began to fall, as the as we heard the air raid silent sirens for the first time. And um, going on to the underground on that first day, seeing all the people, it reminded me of the Blitz. And it was just incredibly sad to see the city brought to its knees in that way. And then again, moved by the huge amount of people, including many of the people I'd made friends with, um, then rushing to the recruitment centers and signing up. And these were incredibly normal people. Um, one friend of mine, Sergey, is a Christian. He works as a humanitarian um, lawyer, I think. Um, yeah. He put his wife on a train and walked 20 kilometers to a recruitment center. And seeing him queuing up and waiting for his weapon sort of moved me. And I was just uh, so in awe of the bravery of the Ukrainian people and determined to get back to the UK to organise myself and, and get back. When you were there, were you already seeing some of these international volunteers also coming into Ukraine? So I've, I know a lot of international volunteers that are already there on the ground, people that I fought with in Syria. And because this uh, conflict has been in stalemate for such a long time, that over the years, people have gone over there, joined the Ukrainian military. And actually, many of them have built lives there. One friend of mine's now got a, a fiance and has, was buying a house prior to the war. So there is a lot of British volunteers already on the ground. Uh, as soon as the invasion happened, um, Zelensky, the president, called for international volunteers to come. And it was just extraordinary. I received something like 200 emails over a 48-hour period. Uh, there's a lot of interest. A lot of people wanted to go out. And obviously, it caused a lot of controversy in the UK, what with the comments of Liz Truss and others. But I, I fully support people who want to go out and join the Ukrainian military. The conflict is very different to the conflict that we saw in, in Syria against the Islamic State. So it's, in my view, even less controversial uh, to go out to Ukraine to fight against Russia. Let's talk about that a bit more. Um, Elizabeth Truss, as you said, I think caused a bit of confusion. She encouraged people to sign up. But then only a few days later, a British army general commented that they, people doing that might be breaking the law. And, and you and I both know of cases where uh, international volunteers in Syria have on their return home faced various legal problems. So as someone who's literally done this themselves, what's your perspective on how democratic countries treat the actions of individuals who choose to volunteer to participate in, in a conflict in another country? Yeah, well, that's, it's a really fascinating area of the law. So in regards to people going abroad to fight, there's no one law that you can uh, point to. If we take, for example, those that joined the Islamic State or other groups in Syria, uh, jihadist groups, they were breaking the law because they were receiving military training, um, usually from groups that were on the UK terror list or were fighting against the interests of the United Kingdom. Uh, when it came to the Kurds, it was a little bit more difficult. And there, there was a real effort by the CPS, the Crown Prosecution Service, to prosecute people who were fighting alongside the Kurds against the Islamic State. Um, and just to sort of go into that, I mean, I think listeners will be staggered to hear that 
the Crown Prosecution Service made a sort of a, a real emphasis on and devoted resources to prosecuting people who had fought against ISIS. You've been in this world. What, what's your understanding of that? The, the, the vagaries of the law is that if you receive training, uh, military training, I mean, and that may be explosives or even small arms, uh, you can find yourself prosecuted under, um, under the law. I think it was largely to do with a number of different things. One is the British government doesn't want to see British subjects go abroad and into foreign conflicts. Uh, it also wants, from a political perspective, it doesn't want the embarrassment of countries, say, let's say Turkey, accusing Britain of allowing British subjects to join Kurdish units. But towards the end, over the years, as they kept failing to successfully prosecute people, they, in the end, they almost gave up on international volunteers fighting for the SDF, and the vast majority haven't been prosecuted. In regards to Ukraine, though, it's slightly different because this is a, a sovereign country on the edge of Europe that's called for international volunteers. Um, British men have joined the French Foreign Legion, they've joined the Israeli army, they've joined many other units around the world uh, over the years and fought in foreign conflicts on their behalf, and they've been allowed to do that. Um, there are There is a law that says that if you fight alongside an enemy of the United Kingdom or against an ally of the United Kingdom, then you can uh, face prosecution. But on this particular occasion, this is Ukraine, a sovereign country, an ally of the United Kingdom, under attack from Russia. And I think you could even almost argue in a courtroom that Russia is not an ally of the UK because of the attack in Salisbury, because of the um, support that we're giving to the Ukrainian people, arms, etc., I think that case could be made. So I, th I and because of the comments of Liz Truss and others, I don't think um, the British government is going to prosecute British men and women who join the Ukrainian military. But it's a case by case basis, and it's not my area of expertise. And of who knows what they'll do? And and you know, just to be clear to any listener, that this podcast does not constitute legal advice. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> One question that I'm interested in your view on is: Is there the potential? for offering the Russians a propaganda coup? Let's say some international volunteers are, are captured in a conflict situation and then the Russians parade them around and say, this is proof that Western special services are operating undercover in Ukraine, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a false allegation, but one which the Russians would then be able to make fairly convincingly if that happened. Yeah, there, there is a um, concern or there is a risk that international volunteers will be captured, they'll be killed. Uh, and that's something that we faced in Syria, where something like more than 50 international volunteers were killed fighting against uh, ISIS. My personal opinion is that under the Geneva Convention, we are volunteers and we are official members of the Ukrainian military. Our nationality shouldn't come into it. We're certainly not there with the permission and the support of our own governments, whether that's Britain, Germany, France, or indeed, I've heard of many uh, examples of people like India and um, Tunisia, etc., going out to join the Ukrainian army. So this is really a broad church and a wide variety of people coming from around the world. It's not just Westerners that could, could get captured here. But I, I really do think that um, the Geneva Convention should count uh, when it comes to that. Mesa, you are, as you said, you're, you're determined to get back out to Ukraine. First off, 
of course, you've been through conflict. You went through what was a very uh, tough and, uh, and probably quite bloody battle for Raqqa. So it's not that you haven't had experience of this. But how do you feel as an individual going towards a war zone where one of the world's largest militaries is flattening cities, indiscriminate shelling, bombing, missile strikes, and so on? How, how does that sort of land with you personally? Well, I'm, uh, I'm afraid. I, I'd be a fool not to be. Uh, Russia, not only is it the aggressor, but it's also, it, it outnumbers and it outguns the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian military. At the end of the day, um, I'm motivated from a moral perspective here in the sense that I support the Ukrainian people and their desire for membership of the EU, breaking away from the Russian orbit and actually creating a viable democracy. Uh, I, I think Zelensky's a good man and um, people are very united on this issue that they don't want the toxic influence of Russia and they want to build a new future for their country. And I see when the post-Brexit Britain, I see an amazing opportunity and I think the British government does just by its actions alone proves this, there's a great future relationship between the United Kingdom and Ukraine to be had um, as, as long as we can settle this Russia question. But that's obviously beyond me. Where it comes where I come in, I, um, I've got a lot of friends over in Ukraine. Um, I am not necessarily going to join. Uh, my plan as of now is not to join the Ukrainian military to fight against Russia. Um, instead, what I'd like to do is to create a medical unit where I've got a number of uh, volunteers already lined up, uh, former military guys from the United Kingdom and the United States. I'm going to give them the right protective equipment, personal protective equipment, give them the right vehicles, the, the right medical equipment as well to support both the military, uh, or the Ukrainian military and Ukrainian civilians. Um, that's something I did in Syria very well. Uh, I mean, in my first year, I, I think we discussed this in our last podcast, but in my first year, I, I fought alongside the SDF. In my second year, I was given command of my own unit called the Tactical Medical Unit, where I brought in two ambulances, about uh, 15 volunteers from Britain and America. Um, and we treated something like 700 casualties in the first year and also trained like 450 people to be first responders themselves. And we gave them hundreds of medical packs uh, to make sure that they were properly equipped. And we made a huge impact on the ground. And what I would like to do is do exactly the same in Ukraine, but bigger and better. That sounds uh, to me listening like an incredibly important and, and also sort of inspiring project. Talk us through a little bit of, of the practicalities of how you're going to put together a, a battlefield, a frontline medical unit, and how you're going to get it on the ground in Ukraine. Well, uh, it will be very similar to how I did it in Syria. I mean, um, the first is getting the people. People in most organizations and in most scenarios are the most important element of a, of a team or of a project. And I've got a great team already coming together. Uh, when it comes to actually the equipment they need, I want them to be first responders. Uh, these are people who will um, uh, stop major hemorrhaging, who will stop uh, blood loss. They will uh, plug wounds and get these people rapidly to hospital. Um, right. In Syria, we had uh, we acquired a military ambulance that once belonged to Assad. I had it refurbished, repainted, new tires put on uh, the works. In the back, I uh, had uh, plenty of my own equipment. I fundraised about £7,000 buying equipment from the United States, which I shipped to Iraq and had smuggled across the border into Syria. But anyway, um, it's using our imagination to get the right funding, 
get the right people, get the right equipment on the ground, working with partners if we can uh, to actually get um, trained medical people on the front line and making sure that by the most important thing is speed, is making sure that, uh, that local people see that foreigners, internationals are on the ground trying to support them, risking their lives. It's part of a a way of highlighting the importance of internationalism, uh, giving them courage um, and security in that sense, and also, of course, saving lives, which is what we all want to do at the end, at the yeah, end of the day. Definitely. And how about the practicalities? For a lot of uh, listeners who, you know, happily have never been in these sorts of situations, I'm sure they'd be interested to know, how do you sort of coordinate? I mean, it a war zone is full of people who, for very understandable reasons, even if they're your allies, are suspicious. They don't know whether they can trust a, a group of people who who show up with, with a lot of equipment and so on. How do you manage those relationships so that you're not mistaken, you know, God forbid, for being uh, some kind of enemy unit or that kind of thing? Sure. Well, in um, for for example, in Syria, I when I had my medical team, I always had a local liaison. I had I brought in a local Kurdish guy who spoke English and Kurdish, and that was a great way to uh, to communicate. Uh, also, I had built up a huge amount of faith amongst the Kurds themselves. I'd already been fighting the year before on the front line with them um, in Ukraine. I was there just a few weeks ago, and that was very much a recce. That was a way of me to go meet members of parliament, meet uh, people on the ground, uh, mostly yeah. members of the Ukrainian Legion, etc., and make sure that what I want to achieve is something that they would want to have, or indeed something that they need to have. And we've already seen thousands of internationals go over and join the Ukrainian military. And I, I don't foresee a language barrier or a cultural barrier being too much of an issue. Yeah. I wanted to talk a bit about uh, the big picture of this conflict. Uh, it's important to, to note that in your fight against uh, ISIS or, or Daesh, you were not fighting against the Russian forces that were in Syria. I think that's correct. That's absolutely correct. Yeah. Yeah. But where I suppose the huge difference is that the Russian military, for all of its apparent lack of success in the early days of this conflict, and possibly the, you know, the individual soldiers may not be highly motivated, uh, it, it would be easy to imagine why. This is, of course, the military of a powerful country, one of the world's most powerful militaries. And you have a leadership that appears indifferent to civilian suffering and a willingness to flatten cities, and ju just as they did do in Syria, in, in support of the Assad regime. So what's your perception as someone who has military experience, but also you're an internationalist, you're someone who takes a close interest in this situation, of how this conflict is likely to unfold? Because that seems to me where the greatest difference to, to what you experience in Syria might be. First of all, when it comes to Ukraine, um, the Russian military... When, if you add in the conscripts, etc., a million strong uh, military with a vast tank reserves and and missiles and everything else, their their war doctrine is overwhelming force, use of artillery barrages, etc., to dominate the uh, the battlefield. And their the the their actions in the first couple of weeks were incredibly bold. The specialist units that went in in helicopters to try and seize strategic pos uh, positions such as airports and uh, to try and swoop in and dominate the the battlefield, 
my first day in the country when I was witnessing these um, these bold moves by Russia was wow. Um, and I think Russia's been shocked and the world's been shocked at how amazingly the Ukrainians have put up a great defense and how foolish the Russians have been in, in uh, doing certain tactics. I think, as you say, these tactics will now evolve now that uh, Russia has seen um, its gains evaporate and and the, the casualty numbers rise. Um, we're going to start seeing tactics very similar to Syria, where uh, Russia will just simply encircle population centers and bomb them into submission, starve them into submission. They'll use a huge amount, and we're already seeing this already, um, of um, propaganda highlighting red flag operations. That's something the Russians are, have perfected over the years and will continue to use. And it's just incredibly sad that the very things that Ukraine needs now, it, it wasn't provided with, or at least it didn't have in place. It needs a better air force. It needs more um, anti-air missiles. Um, it needs greater abilities to defend itself at sea as well. I strongly suspect this this crisis will get worse before it gets better. And And I suppose my question is, to you, you're you're literally someone who embodies uh, the the fight for freedom. You've been you've shown yourself now in two different conflicts as prepared to go there, to go to the front line, and to do your bit on a personal level. But how do you feel about what Western countries are doing now? There is yes, of course, we've we've supplied weapons, and there's no doubt that those weapons. I think has have made a material difference to Ukraine's ability to do it, defend itself. But as you've already said. Ukraine doesn't have a sufficient air force. You've got now the Black Sea fleet. Uh, it looks as though it might be about to fire shells into the, the port city of Odessa. It, it is certainly the case at the moment that, that Ukraine is does not have the defensive resources it needs to be able to hold off the Russians. Uh, so what is your your view as an individual, but someone who has, has is a highly committed individual, on what Western countries should be doing in addition to what is already happening? Well, I think um, uh, the, the West, I think, has emboldened Russia in many respects because of its actions over the last few years. For example, pulling out of Afghanistan in the way that we did, the terrible handling of the fight against uh, the Islamic State, including uh, Donald Trump's um, decision to remove US troops from um, Syria, well, he didn't actually pull them all out, but he removed some of them. And he certainly gave the green light to Turkey to militarily intervene uh, more brutally in the conflict there. Um, really poor responses to uh, things like the last attack on Ukraine and the, the seizing of Crimea, etc. A non-unified yeah. response in Europe there. So I think, first of all, that we could have done a lot more for Ukraine before this conflict started. Um, I have been impressed somewhat with the unity in Europe, and it's been quite surprising to see uh, countries such as Germany um, actually stepping up to some degree. And um, the expulsion of Russia from the SWIFT banking network, for example, and other yeah. uh, major decisions which will have a huge impact on Russia. I, I think hopefully this spells a new dawn for Europe and for the West more generally that actually we need to start drawing red lines, particularly when it comes to countries like Russia and China, because we're going to be severely tested in the years ahead. But um, uh, in terms of Ukraine, I think it's too late for a no-fly zone. I think what the West has done in, in giving anti-tank missiles, Britain and America, etc., has been amazing. It has staved off uh, the worst uh, excesses of Russia and at least slowed down the Russian advance. 
they would already have conquered Kiev by now if we hadn't have intervened in that way. And I think probably the next step really is to bring the economic might of the West to bear on Russia as much as humanly possible and try and squeeze uh, Russia's allies as well and force them not to deal uh, with Russia in crucial areas of its economy. Because um, if we can make this the Vietnam for Russia, if we can bring the economic might of the West to bear on on Russia and, and bring them to the knees in that place as well, we will have a negotiated settlement. We're never going to see the, the defeat of Russia, but um, we need to negotiate from a position of strength. And of course, an aspect of this, and, and it, you know, those seeking to defend the West's position would say that we have to guard against an es- a further escalation. What's your feeling about that question? Because it seems that in some respects, Western countries are forcing themselves to limit their support for Ukraine because they fear further Russian escalation, but the Russians continue to escalate anyway. Well, Putin um, only respects strength. All autocrats do. Although Turkey is an ally of the of the West, um, I think weakness uh, from the West has encouraged their worst excesses, whether it's bombing uh, targets in Iraq or invading uh, Syria, um, or yeah. indeed its activities in Armenia and Libya, uh, and its threats towards Greece uh, as well, of course. We'll never forget that. So if if we show unity, if we uh, are willing to stand up for our values and put forward what are supposed to be Western values of, of liberty, of democracy, of equality, I think that's the, the way we can win the fights or the challenges of the 21st century. Because um, if you look at the rise of countries like China, if you look at the direction that many countries, many very powerful countries in the world, whether it's Russia or Turkey or many others, then one of the best ways to fight against them is not only to bring our economic might to bear, but it's also to actually highlight the values that um, are so important to us and make sure that those values are spread around the world. So in Ukraine, I think we could have done a lot for them sooner, but hopefully things change. From the way you've sp- spoken about it, but also I think from any kind of objective analysis, it is hard to see this war being over quickly. For example, if Russia you know, has to be uh, fought to a bit of a standstill, that sounds like something that will take many years. And, and you, you made the analogy of Vietnam, which, which feels appropriate. How do you see the sustainability of this? Because I suppose the, the fight against the Islamic State, you were facing a, a fanatical enemy, one that in many cases, you know, that the, the people were, were effectively sort of prepared to give up their lives because they, they believed in this sort of twisted interpretation of the martyrdom concept. This is a very different battle against a huge country that has very deep resources. How sustainable is that, particularly for international volunteers who who, who themselves are not backed by a state and are not backed necessarily by a government and they don't have that sort of uh, long-running supply of resources? Well, I think um, Ukraine's a vast country, but the Russians could try and push through the country all the way to the border of Poland, which would take a very, very long time if you go by how the current crisis has sort of progressed. Um, what you could see is a partitioning of the country, very much like sort of South and North Vietnam during the war there. 
And hopefully things will change. I think more international volunteers will go. Uh, there's talk in Ukraine that something like 20,000 international volunteers have volunteered for uh, the Ukrainian military. Uh, you've seen a mobilization of hundreds of thousands, a vast amount of Ukrainian people rising up and, and joining the military. Uh, and you're seeing the country flooded with Western arms. So this conflict could become a very brutal uh, battle of attrition. And Russia... Uh, if it wishes to subjugate the entire country, which is a vast country, the, I think believe I believe it's the largest country in Europe, but it's certainly larger than Germany. If they want to properly hold this territory, I'm pretty sure that the entire Russian army or professional Russian army is going to be needed to do that. I don't know what this is costing them every day in oil and expenses, but it certainly cost them a hell of a lot of money when it comes to their wider GDP. Um, hopefully, this brutal war of attrition is a step too far for Putin. But again, I think that the, 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 where we need to be is we need to find ourselves, um, just as was it Churchill who said, you can't negotiate when you've got your head in the lion's mouth or whatever that old statement was from the yeah. uh, during the Second World War. Uh, it's very much uh, the same here. We need to find out who holds the greatest number of cards when we finally do get to Geneva or anywhere similar. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that sort of my, my final question is is one about the volunteers themselves. Uh, there will be people such as yourself who've got experience, who've got relevant background knowledge. There may be others who are possibly going there for for the wrong reasons. How, how does a, a, a fairly loose kind of sort of coalition of, of an international uh, brigade manage some of those people who might be uh, more uh, sort of br bring more problems than they bring solutions, if you know what I mean, to, to the war zone? Because I'm sure that there is, some of that can happen. Yeah, people who volunteer abroad, they really do come from a broad church uh, of political beliefs, of their own backgrounds, their own CV, whether or not they've got military experience or any, any other relevant experience to the war effort, or whether or not they are the sort of person you'd want there in the first place. Um, a lot of very unsavoury characters ended up in Iraq and, and in Syria, alongside whether yeah. it was the, the Kurds for the YPG or the later the SDF, or whether it was the Peshmerga in Iraq, including... Yeah. Unfortunately, to say, criminals, people that were wanted for very serious crimes in the West, um, yeah. went out there for redemption purposes, also perhaps to escape uh, the West and their problems. And um, they brought their problems with them to, and it caused much embarrassment to the people they joined. So there will be a lot of weeding out of people. Um, I do think in the big scheme of things that the international volunteers, whatever conflict they go into, um, they do more good than they do harm, primarily because what Ukraine needs now is enthusiastic volunteers, people on the ground willing to fight. I think um, there's a lot of goodwill in the West towards the internationals and towards people supporting Ukraine. I think Ukraine has done an amazing PR effort in terms of its presence, staying in the city capital and its efforts to highlight the fact that it all it wants is sovereignty and independence. I just hope that the international volunteers, that, that they are a little bit um, what's the, reflective before they go and realise yeah. that am I going from a position of sort of goodwill and am I going to be a real asset on the ground? If you're a doctor, volunteer for the hospitals. If you're a, a former serviceman, by all means, if you wish to volunteer for the army, why not? Uh, if you are none of those things and, you, and you're trying to run away from something, then that will inevitably cause problems. Um, so, yeah, we'll have to wait and see how, how this develops. 
Well, look, Mesa, I want to just express personally my admiration for the work that you're doing. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners would be interested to know if they can support you in some way. So say a little bit about how if someone wants to donate or perhaps offer materials or something, how someone might do that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you can contact me on my social media platforms, simply type Mesa Gifford into Twitter or Facebook. I've got a fundraiser up where I'm trying to set up a medical unit that will be on the ground uh, saving lives in the next month. If you wish to support more generally, there is another fantastic charity simply called Come Back Alive. And it's uh, a Ukrainian charity that set up uh, sending personal protective equipment to frontline units and making sure, of course, that Ukrainian uh, refugees are fed and watered at the border and uh, transported safely. So you, there's two great uh, uh, causes right there. Absolutely. Well, on that note, uh, I want to thank you very much for joining us today and wish you every good fortune with the really important work that you're going to be doing in the next few weeks and months. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. So don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other app that has ratings. And if you really like the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, and help shape future episodes, all from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.